for us, and then we're going to kind of dive in to think about this is this is the first turn in Ephesians where Paul has kind of given us what, what we would call the indicative of the, of the gospel. Like, here's what's true. Here's what God has done in his love uh, for us through Christ. Um, and he spends three chapters just beautifully laying it out, drawing our attention to it. And then chapter four is a turn where basically the question is, how does that gospel, uh, we move to the imperative. How does that gospel then begin to shape us and change us? What does it look like in our lives? Let me read it for us, and then we'll dive in to what I want to talk about tonight. So here we go. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. It's printed in your handout. Uh, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, let me pray for us, and I want to jump in to this passage tonight. Let's pray first. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the book of Ephesians. We thank you that you've not left us uh, in the dark in terms of what it is that you have done for us. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But Lord, you you have also revealed uh, what life in Christ looks like. And Lord, I pray that in ways that you alone can do, would you bring conviction? Would you bring encouragement? Uh, Would you be the lifter of our heads uh, that we might... Uh, see the joy of our Savior, and would you be the one who uh, moves in our hearts in the ways that we um, have idols to repent of and have sins uh, to confess. So, Lord, would you meet us in that way as we look at this text together tonight. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Scotty Smith is a longtime pastor in Nashville in the PCA, and he tells a story of getting uh, a letter from a visitor, which most of those letters I can only imagine that I've, that I've heard from my pastor friends don't go well. It's part of why I'm still in RUF. Um, but this one was really encouraging because it was a mom. Uh, her daughter had had a newborn, and she just kind of happened to go to church with her one Sunday to help her care for her infant. And she hated the church, and she wrote him this letter. Here's what she said. She said, I hate church distrust preachers, and I'm annoyed by most Christians. The church people I know back in Florida aren't even different from people who sleep in on Sunday mornings. They're just as selfish, greedy, and prickly. But here's the thing. Sitting in the back of your church for four Sundays was different. 
I felt welcomed and respected, and I noticed all kinds of people there, rich and poor, well-dressed and shoeless. It was the first time I've been in a center-safe church. It didn't feel like a religious show. People seemed real and humble. Everyone seemed to need what you were talking about, including you. Most of the preachers I've heard seem angry, arrogant, and a bit emotionally constipated, but I didn't get that vibe in your church. My daughter said it was God's grace I was seeing. Perhaps. I wish there was a church like yours in South Florida. Maybe at risk of visit. Anyway, thank you, and her name. And then Scotty goes on to apply this, and he says, what, and I like this, here's where we're going tonight, because what, what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 4 is what does a culture, a ministry, a church, look like when it's shaped by the gospel? That's what he's driving at. And here's what Scotty says that I really like. He talks about when you walk into a ministry, when you walk into a church, uh, it's got a certain smell to it. Um, it makes me think of that Leonard Skinner song, Ooh, That Smell. If you know that reference, great. If not, just let's keep going. But the idea is, you know what I mean? It's got a flavor, right? It's got, it's got a distinct vibe to it. And here's, he, he, give, he gives some examples of here's some of the bad smells. And here are the smells we're going for. Here are the bad ones. What does it smell like when you walk into our Because here's the question. Here's what I want to do tonight. Is it weird to say, what is our smell? That is weird. But, you know, what is our vibe? Is our culture a grace culture? Uh, that's a question I want to ask tonight. And we're going to get to what it looks like. But here's what he says. Does it smell like a ripoff? Like we're here to use you. Does it smell like a lame party? Does it smell like religious snobbery? Does it smell like uptight killjoys? Does it smell like an in crowd? Or... Does it smell like humble hearts? Does it smell like servants? Does it smell like Thanksgiving? (laughs) That works both ways. It is going to smell like Thanksgiving when we do our Thanksgiving feast. That's to come later. Does it smell like an open door? Does it smell like true worship? Does it smell like love? Does it smell like real purpose? Does it smell like hope? In other words, is our culture... A culture of grace. Does it smell that way where the love of Jesus is palpable and everyone here knows our lostness apart from him? And I think Paul in Ephesians 4 kind of lays out what does it look like? What what are the ingredients, so to speak, to, to build or to have or to grow in a gospel culture? And there are three of them in the text. The three ingredients, so to speak, are one, unity, two, humility, and then third, um, Unity, humility, and third, maturity. Uh, Unity, humility, and then thirdly, maturity. Let's start with unity. Uh, This is where, again, we've reached this first major shift in Ephesians from the indicative to the imperative, from being to doing, from what God has done for us to show us, moving to to show us how the gospel shapes what we do and how we live. And I I don't want to miss that. Christianity is actually the only religion that has that order, where it's not, here's what you have to do to be loved and accepted by God. But instead, here is what God has done through Christ, in Christ, to love and accept us and to bring us to himself. But it's interesting that Paul's first application, as he moves to application, is unity. Is that we would be so moving toward one another, moving toward one another, understanding one another, being patient with one another in love and charity, that that is his first application. That the heart of Jesus longs for his people to be one. 
to be on the same page, to be moving in love and kindness and patience towards one another. In fact, if you study the text, it's interesting. Paul uses that word one seven times, and he uses that word all four times, which all you need to know is these are biblical numbers for fullness and completeness. This is God's plan in Christ to, to make us one as his people in love. Uh, and this is another way we could say it. Jesus' greatest plan for evangelism isn't a booklet, isn't a bold encounter, it's a place and a people who are united in his love. That is his master plan, if you will, of evangelism, uh, i.e. a group of Christians that love each other well. That's why Jesus said when he, in John 13, after he had washed their feet, remember what he said to his disciples? He said this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if we love one another. I was thinking about uh, this time in my life. I was a junior and I played basketball in high school. Uh, freshman and sophomore year, I got to start on JV. And then junior year was a real challenge because I was riding the bench hard. And I was losing any motivation to even be there. And I remember vividly this one practice where I almost quit because we were running suicides. And I, I had, I'd gone from being like a starter to zero motivation. And I'm running these things like pretty slowly to the point where one of my teammates, he's now a, he's now a pastor, but he just yelled. I didn't make the time, so we had to run it again. He just yelled, why can't he make the time? And shame just washed over me. And that was the moment where I'm like, I'm done with this. This is stupid. Like, I'm tired of riding this bench. I'm tired of playing with this team. But then a mentor at youth group pulled me aside, and I kind of confessed that to him. I said, you know, I'm thinking about quitting. And he said, can I just reframe it for you? What if you move from being upset about your own playing time, being upset about yourself, people not seeing maybe how good you feel like you are, and what if you saw it instead as a ministry, that you should just show up and love your teammates and love them in the way that Jesus has loved you? And that's what I did, and it was a huge change for me that, that season. Because why? Because it went from I to we. It went from me to we. And that's part of the shift that Paul is laying out for us in Ephesians 4. We have a great propensity. It doesn't matter if we're in a church or in a ministry to make it about ourselves. And we are invited in the name of unity to begin to to move into something bigger, which is this culture of grace where we begin to love each other. I like the way that Scotty Smith says it. He says, in a culture of grace, a commitment to this unity trumps individualism and condemns divisiveness. Each of us matter to love this line. Each of us matters, but none of us is the point. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, we count others more significant than ourselves because we esteem Jesus above everything. And here's the first question for us. In what ways have you, have I, made things about ourselves? And what would, by God's grace, repenting of that look like? So first, unity. But then here's the deal. We can't have unity if we don't have number two, which is genuine humility. Uh, genuine humility. You, you can't possibly, we're never possibly going to love and accept one another, one another in the name of Christ without being truly humbled ourselves. And that's why Paul starts in verse 1 with this idea of urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And look how he describes it. Here's what he says. Look at the text. With all humility, this is the Christian life. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is the way of Jesus. And let's think about how we more often do it. If we were to rewrite it according to our flesh, 
It would say, not in pride and harshness, but with impatience, having a short fuse with one another in anger, being easily offended, being divisive in gossip and ridicule and humble bragging. And my question is, when you read how Paul says it, humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another and love and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, is this how you would describe most churches or youth groups or ministries you've been part of? That the culture was one of humility and gentleness. That people were extremely patient with one another. That people shared and showed up for each other in their struggles with sin because it was safe to do so. That people were eager not to score points or answer questions or look good, but to do everything possible to maintain their love for each other, their oneness, and their unity. I think the reality is I've been thinking about this text is most of us have been taught, if you grew up in the church, that to be a Christian means we avoid certain sins of the body. Like, this is the email I get from y'all's parents. I mean, not literally. Well, some of you literally, but they're scared for you in college because why? Are they scared that you're going to become proud? Are they scared that you're going to grow in greed? Are they scared that you're going to chase the in crowd? That's not the emails I've gotten. It's more like, how can we save my child from the culture? And it's like, well, let's talk about this. But we think about sins as sins of the body. Not getting drunk or high or having sex or cussing. And we quickly put all sin into the category of bodily behaviors. But that's not where Jesus and Paul live. They matter. But Jesus himself said it starts in the heart. To be a genuine Christian means you were transformed. You've been transformed from the heart outward, which means... Your biggest problem and my biggest problem aren't sins of the body necessarily. It's sins of the heart. The sins of pride and greed and lust and anger and judgmentalism and bitterness and cynicism and living for image. Uh, this, C.S. Lewis has a genius chapter in Mere Christianity called The Great Sin. It's about pride. He's got this line that I love where he says this. He said, the devil became the devil not through lust but through pride. Let's just think about pride for a second together as we think about humility because it's the antidote. It's the, it's the opposite of humility. And let me just be, I'll be vulnerable with you for a second because I was thinking about this, uh, writing the sermon. How, how does pride work in my life? And let me just let you into it. Here's what pride does in me. It keeps me from praying. It keeps me from asking for the help I know I need. It keeps me from sharing my struggles as honestly as I could. It keeps me, in other words, I share them in a way that feels manageably acceptable. It keeps me uh, creatively looking for reasons why I'm better than other people or why other people are worse than me. And let me tell you, my creativity there is just strong. It keeps me uh, chasing what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring, which he describes as the place of the, the powerful few where I can be liked by them and know if I'm liked and approved by them, then I will feel loved, which is a lie from the pit of hell. It keeps me being so caught up in myself and my own needs and wants that I can't serve others. It keeps me from intimacy with my wife, with my children, with my friends, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It keeps me from being more faithful to the church because I don't want to be needed and I don't want to to need. It keeps me looking down on others whether it's politically or personality or the shows that they like or the shoes that they wear. 
I could keep going. I don't know how pride works in you. I love that's why I love that scene, Narnia. You know the scene if you read or have watched the movies. Although the movies really failed this one, but it's a scene if you know the story of Eustace Scrub. He's the cousin uh, of all the kids, and he has this moment where he's he's greedy. He wants to go back, and they're in these great adventures in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And he has this weird thing happen where he's trying to get some gold from this dragon, but the next thing he knows, he falls asleep and he becomes a dragon. You know the story, and he's terrified because he doesn't know how to undragon himself. He's like flying around in despair, thinking like, I'm a dragon now. In some ways, I imagine that's cool. But in a lot of ways, it's not what I intended. And then if you know the scene where he finally encounters Aslan, and it's a beautiful scene in the book, the way that Lewis writes it is basically Aslan, in this beautiful way, uh, begins to, um, to kind of tear off his scales and to make him human again. And Lewis describes it as, as incredibly, the way that Eustace described it, as incredibly, as he made the first tear with his big claws, incredibly painful. But at the same time, after Aslan has, has ripped all of the dragon scales off of him, he talks about washing in the water and feeling human again, feeling clean again. And I think it's a beautiful picture to me of pride in the sense of this is what we need. And my pride says I can do it myself. And the humility that Jesus has for me says, no, my child, I alone have that kind of power. Pride says, I can do it myself. I must do it myself. Where humility says, I can't. I need Jesus and I need you and you need me. So that's the second question is where does pride have a foothold in your life right now? And what would it look like to take it to Jesus? That the scales might start to come off. So first, unity, second, humility. And then third, maturity. This is a weird one because let me get into it. If it's true there's no unity without humility, I think it's also true there's no humility without maturity. In other words, the more mature you become as a Christian, it is with humility, know yourself to be worse and know your need for Jesus to be more. That is maturity in the Christian life. I think we mess this up so much. I think we want to define maturity in our culture by like, what's in your bank account? Like, are, you know, how do you dress and look? Or like, do you have kids? Let me tell you, kids don't make you mature. I've got four. They give opportunity for responsibility, but they don't make me mature. Um, and here's the way that Paul begins to talk about maturity. It's the theme in which he ends that we would no longer be like toddlers. You ever been around a toddler? Pitching a fit? Toddlers are amazing, but also their ability to pitch a fit is unparalleled. Pitching a fit, wanting their toy, wanting their way, but that we would grow up into men and women who love Christ and his people. Maturity looks like this. Maturity looks like dying to your own way. It looks like dying to yourself. It looks like making more of others than you do of yourself and myself. It looks like knowing how to process your feelings before the Lord and at the same time knowing how to go against your feelings when you need to show up in love. It looks like saying, I was wrong and I'm really sorry and will you forgive me a lot? It looks like understanding yourself but also repenting of your own personality. It looks like being slow to speak quick to listen and even quicker to not be easily offended. It looks like caring less what others think of you, but showing up in love more. It looks like Jesus. (laughs) 
None of us, if we're being honest, if you think you're there, let me just go ahead and tell you, you're not mature. Part of maturity is you know you're not there. But also you're clear on the goal and you're clear on the vision. And I think that's why, I wonder if that's why Paul snuck in that little line that gets so abused where he talks about speaking the truth and love to one another. Because don't you think he knows that some of us are the tell-it-like-it-is people? Where it's like, they can't handle my boldness. And it's like, well, maybe that's a you problem. And some of us are, I would rather die than tell you what I really think about this. And that's not love either. That's just called people-pleasing. And I know that one really well. And don't you think that neither of us hold beautifully that tension? Where I love you enough to tell you the truth and gentleness and patience. And also, that's, I, sometimes I just need to show up and listen and be your friend. And there's only one who's ever held that tension perfectly. And his name is Jesus. And think about applying that line to Jesus. Jesus, who John says is full of truth and grace. He so spoke the truth that he got killed for it. And he laid down his life, got killed for it because of his love for us. And it's interesting, before he went to the cross for us, if we were to go to John 17, he prayed for us. It's called the high priestly prayer in John 17. And he prayed. What did he pray for? He prayed for what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. He says, Father, I pray that your and my people would be one. That they would so be enraptured by my and your love for them. And he says, literally, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I like the way that Eugene Peterson says it. He says it like this. There are no maps to the mature life and certainly not to the mature life in Christ. Growing up involves an assimilation of nothing less than everything, the all to the one. The all of parents, biology, schooling, neighborhood, worship, scripture, friends, prayers, disappointments, accidents, injuries, songs, depression, politics, money, sin, forgiveness, occupations, play, novels, children, poems, marriage, suicides. The all of it. And the one of God. Also referred to four times in Ephesians as the fullness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? That all of it is encompassed by the love of Jesus. And God meets us in all of our story. And that is what maturity begins to look like. Is bringing all of it under the umbrella, into the arms, into the embrace of Jesus himself. I'll close with this. Uh, So part of that mentor I I mentioned, that youth group I mentioned, was a huge part of my early Christian life. And I had a youth uh, pastor named Mark Yoder, who my junior year did move from Sumter, South Carolina to Birmingham, Alabama. And we would go visit him like once a year. And I think this was my freshman year, a hard year for me for lots of reasons. Freshman year of college, I had gone down to see Mark and his family. And Mark was just an amazing youth pastor. Like he was serious, but fun. Like he was, he was fatherly to me. But this one moment I'll never forget, maybe I've shared this before, but uh, there was a moment where he just invited me along to what he was doing that week. I was visiting him in the middle of his work week. And what he was doing is he was building a stage for the new youth room. So he's like, Sammy, come with me to Home Depot. We're going to build a stage together. And if you know me, you know that one of my worst nightmares is when I walk through the doors of a Home Depot, let's just say I don't feel mature, right? I just don't feel whatever. So I'm like, okay, 
Um, and there was this moment where we had gone to get the supplies and we were in the youth room and we were building the stage and he hands me the nails and he hands me the hammer and says, here's what to do. And like, when I tell you I was messing it up, I was messing it up, right? <laughs> like, like he, like, like a normal dad probably would have been like, what are you doing? Stop. Are you an idiot? Have you never hammered a nail before? And I was like, no, no, I've never hammered a nail before. But instead, I mean, just with incredible patience, just kept guiding me. Like, no, here's here. And like, would gently kind of come around and be like, just like this. And he would show me, and I would do it again. And like, we did this for hours. And can I tell you what I was struck by? To me, it still is one of my favorite pictures of Jesus. Because Jesus is saying, come into this beautiful family that I'm building. It is a family of grace. I am building it by my grace. And it is so much bigger than you or me. You're not the point of it. And yet you have a beautiful role to play. And don't you know that I'm so committed to you learning from me? We just sing it strong and kind. But with staggering patience and perfect love and enduring joy to teach us over and over again how to follow him together. That's the goal. That's what a culture of grace looks like. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we, we, we cannot do anything apart from you. We certainly can't do this. But would you give us this vision, your vision, uh, for your people, for your church, uh, that we might be invited into something bigger than ourselves, that we might uh, follow you in the laying down of our lives for one another in love. Um, there is no way that we have that in us. That is the work of your spirit, purely and truly. And we ask for that, that you would build something beautiful in our own midst. That RUF would be known as, as a culture where people feel welcomed, a center-safe space, where we talk more about Jesus than ourselves, where the love that you have for us is made known and, and we can, people can feel it uh, and rest in it. We ask that. You alone can do that. And we ask you for it. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand and sing with us our last song.